Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Let Freedom Reign podcast. Before we get started, I just want to let you know, this episode is brought to you by Buckaroo Media, a digital marketing company that focuses on social media that cultivates relationships between brands and their customers. Buckaroo Media prides themselves on building genuine and authentic connections. Digital marketing doesn't have to be overwhelming or overly time-consuming. With Buckaroo Media on your team, you are free to focus on the areas of your business which you are most passionate about, and let Buckaroo Media handle the rest. Check them out on Instagram at buckaroo.media or Facebook at Buckaroo Media. For more information about Buckaroo Media and how they can grow your Western brand, visit buckaroomedia.com. B-U-C-K-A-R-O-O-M-E-D-I-A.com. Oh wait, and one more thing before we get on to the episode. As part of our continued effort here at Let Freedom Rain Podcast to bring awareness to the incredible benefits of horsemanship, we'd like to share with you an event that includes the ultimate horseman in the ultimate show. We're talking about Heart of the Horse, brought to you by Nikki Flundra, who just so happened to be featured in episode 23. Heart of the Horse will be held at Silver Slate Arena in Nanton, Alberta, September 20th through the 22nd. This event will host a cult starting competition to include Dan James, Matt Robertson, and Glenn Stewart, all of which have been previous guests here at Let Freedom Rain podcast. Sunday, the winning horse will be auctioned off to benefit Robinson Outreach at Rivercross Ranch. Throughout the weekend, there will be horsemanship clinics, demos in liberty and trick riding, a Western artisan competition, trade show, and much more. Join us Saturday night for dinner and dancing and a chance to meet the competitors and other special guests. Let Freedom Rain Podcast will have a booth at the event and we'll be interviewing guests and fans throughout the event. Stop on by, say hi, and you might have a chance to be a guest on the show. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit theheartofthehorse.ca. We look forward to seeing you all there. Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life, who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance, and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned, we're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another week here at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. With Heart of the Horse only being a few weeks away, we're getting pretty excited to make our trip to Alberta. Nikki Flunder and her team has put a ton of effort forward to make this production what it is. It'll be exciting to get up there and see this event come to light. So this week lands us at episode 55. Our guest is world-renowned horseman Warwick Schiller. Warwick got his start with reigning horses, transitioned into general horsemanship, and recently had a change in philosophy and approach. You won't have to make it very far into this episode to understand the credibility of Warwick's resume. The man has taught horsemanship literally all over the world. Throughout the episode, we discuss a multitude of approaches to horsemanship and how they directly apply to life. With every guest, a notebook lays next to me as I do the interview, and I scratch notes and questions, things to follow up on as we progress through the interview. But in my time with Warwick, I literally filled pages and pages and pages of quotes and resources and books, all in an effort to grow and learn. Warwick has published over 300 videos on YouTube, is active on Instagram and Facebook, and for more details about Warwick and his program, visit warwickschiller.com, W-A-R-W-I-C-K-S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R.com. As always, we thank each and every listener for your continued support here at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you haven't already, follow us on both Facebook and Instagram for the most up-to-date information about the show and upcoming guests. We hope you find value in every episode and ask you to share the show with a friend. As always, we hate to keep y'all waiting any longer. Here's the first of a two-part conversation with Warwick Schiller. I did three in uh, England and then one in in Scotland. 
And so my son came with me. So he's 22. He's just graduated college. He has a degree in business administration. So he has joined our team. Um, he's working mostly for us. He's working on marketing stuff. Um, he's got a lot of, you know, with his education, he's got a lot of knowledge about stuff that neither my wife or I have. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's fun. He's come home from college and we get to travel around a bit. So that was our first, that was our first big trip since he's been back. So yeah, we're in, we're in, in the UK for two weeks. And so that we got to pull in at some castles while we're driving around him. Him and I are both what my wife calls castle geeks. She's not that interested. <laughs> She's not that interested in every castle you see, but, um, but somebody's got a drive or something, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, no, it was a it was a really really good trip. It's got to be incredible had- to get out and see some of the history. I previously had Chuck Swisher on, who's a bullfighter, and uh, he was talking about a recent trip that he took to Ireland and going mm. to some of these churches and some of these towns that have been around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the United States was even a thought. Oh yeah, we um, actually this trip we visited Hadrian's Wall. Do you know what Hadrian's Wall is? I do not. So Hadrian's Wall was the the most northern part of the Roman Empire. So it's almost to the Scottish border. It goes all the way across. It's a wall they built all the way across England from one side to the other. I think it's seventy three miles or something or other. Oh, and at wow. the time, it was it was fourteen feet high at the time. It's since crumbled most places, but it was built with big stone, just like a castle would be built. So there was and it was every. I don't know, half a mile, there was like a, a fort sort of thing, a watchtower. Mm-hmm. And so some of that's still standing. And, um, you know, it's like a mini, mini Great Wall of China, but it, it basically separated the Roman Empire from the, the barbarians to the north, the Scottish tribes. What an incredible piece of history. Could you imagine if that wall could talk? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, so it um, it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage listed site. It's Yeah, it's very, very very, very cool to go and see it. And it was built in, I don't know, 600 AD, something like that. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around like that concept of time. Well, that concept of time, but also a 73-mile-long, 76-mile-long wall that's 14 feet high and it's built like the same way you would build a castle. So it's a 76-mile-long stone building basically. Think of all the red tape and bureaucracy and engineering that would go into building a project like that today. I mean, it would be an absolute headache, yet this was pulled off, you know, thousands of years ago and and Mm -hmm. parts of it are still standing to this day. So there was obviously some success in it. Yeah, and the only reason that a lot of it's not still standing is because they pulled it. It didn't fall down. They pulled it down. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of those castles over there have been built, you know, then we we actually had break. We had stayed in uh, an Airbnb Oh, sorry, it wasn't Airbnb. It was a and b And uh, because we left for the clinic early in the morning, we didn't actually get to eat breakfast there. But the last morning we were there, we ate breakfast. And we were sitting at breakfast looking out the window. There's a castle across the street. And I read the history on it and it had been built. Then it had been pulled down and, you know, other stuff. The stone was used for other things. And then it was rebuilt, you know, in the 17th century, 18th century or something or other. But, yeah, they were just – use the stone for something else they'd pull them to pieces so if if you didn't tear it down it didn't fall down that's incredible how it was uh, almost like resourced to repurpose yeah for other logistics mm-hmm. yeah so where's where's the horse taking you other parts of the world uh in the past uh well so i've done clinics in australia new zealand canada america um all over western europe so germany austria belgium holland switzerland Spain, Italy, 
France. No, not France. I've been to France, but I didn't do a clinic in France. I was going to say, you could say France because most of us don't even know enough to refute that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, And the UK, so England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Kenya, and South Africa. That is absolutely incredible. Most people have a hard time just getting outside the arena. Yeah, I've been, I've been so fortunate. And uh, like the trip to Kenya, my son came with me and that was a trip of a lifetime. So how does that uh, trip come about? Uh, well, we had, I had, you know, I'll do clinics anywhere people really want me to go. And yeah. um, I had someone in South Africa want me to do a clinic there. And then I had a lady, well, two ladies from Kenya contact me and they wanted me to do a clinic at their place. But we couldn't get enough people uh, to actually do a clinic as in make it work out Viable, financially. Yeah. But I wanted to go and see Kenya. And so one of these ladies uh, owns the place and the other one has been a safari guide in Kenya for the last 17 years. She's actually a licensed diesel mechanic and so she has driven one of those big six-wheel drive trucks yeah. through every country in Africa except Angola or Mozambique. One of those two she tried to get through and couldn't couldn't get through there, but she's driven through all the bad places. She's been driven through Somalia, driven through there's only one she hasn't driven through, so she's either driven through yeah, Angola yeah. or Mozambique. Everything that's on in Civil War, she's been all over the place. And uh, the lady who owned the place, you know, she wanted me to come to a clinic there. And, and when we couldn't get enough participants to actually fill the clinic up, I said, "Well, I still want to, I still want to come." So the agreement we had with her was, I said, Robin said, "So I'll fly Warwick and Tyler there. When they get there, you put them up and look after them for." as many days as you want them for, and then if you give them that much, that many days in safari experience. So we spent three days with her, and then they took us on safari into uh, Amboseli National Park, which is the, the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro on the Kenyan side because Mount Kilimanjaro is in, it's the Serengeti's on the, the Tanzanian side. But So we got to go there. But what was fascinating I actually think well, being at the lady's house was almost as good as being on safari because she lived about an hour south of Nairobi on the Nairobi-Mombasa highway. And about 25 years ago, some guy bought 500 acres and he was going to subdivide it into five-acre lots and he was going to put on the power and the water and all that sort of stuff. And so this lady bought a five-acre block back then and built this big stone house on it. it looks like something out of the movie out of africa and then the power and the water didn't come so she's actually on rainwater collects rainwater off the roof for water and oh. and she's on solar power so she has these huge big batteries that store solar power um but because the power and the water didn't actually come on it didn't actually he didn't actually get it no one else bought so in this 500 acres there's probably five four or five houses um, and then it's surrounded by about 3,000 acres of nothing. And so we're basically staying at this house that's in about 3,500 acres of nothing. And so you could get up in the morning and walk, uh, you know, maybe a quarter of a mile from the house and walk through a herd of zebra. We saw, I saw a giraffe from my bedroom window one morning. Holy in, smokes. Off, off, off in the distance. Yeah, still um, though. So, mm, it was very, very cool. You could just get up and walk around, you know, go, you know, we we go for a walk before breakfast every morning. You know, you can walk through a herd of zebra. There was wildebeest everywhere, some giraffe, um, no predators. They say there's a cheetah around there every once in a while, but there's no none of the yeah no lions or anything like that. But yeah, it was that was almost better than the national park going to Amboseli National Park just because it was 
it's not organized. Yeah, it's all you know, its, its own it's, natural yeah. environment. Yeah, it was it was very very cool. How impressive! So, How so impressive. Those, those were the yeah that was uh, Kenya. But so I'm a big believer in manifesting stuff. You know, like you know, believing stuff's going to happen. Yeah. And so earlier this year, I kind of said, hmm, "Universe, I want someone to contact me from." an exotic sort of a place, a place I've never been before and something that's unlike anywhere I've ever been before. And that doesn't leave a whole lot. You know, I haven't been to South America. I was going to say, you got quite the resume, so <laughs> this, is, this is quite the task you're asking for. So either a Nordic country, uh, South America, Asia, or the Middle East. Those were kind of the places I haven't been. So has any of that come to fruition yet? Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. So I, I put it out there. So I wanted to be I wanted to be asked to do a clinic in a kind of exotic sort of a place that I haven't been, you know, not yeah. not somewhere I haven't been that's not exotic. Correct. You know, like Correct. really interesting sort of thing. Anyway, so if you, I just put it out there and um, I have a friend of mine from Wales and she's very, um, I don't know, I call it witchy, uh, yeah. you know, very spiritual in touch with stuff. And she has this saying, she says, Intention, attention, no tension. So intention is put that intention out there. Mm-hmm. Then pay attention to the opportunities that arise from that intention and then have no tension, meaning don't sweat it. Don't like, oh, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And so I just did the whole intention, attention, no tension thing. And about three months later, we had a, a an email from the wife of the British ambassador to Morocco. And she said, would you like to do a clinic in Morocco? And I'm like, as a matter of fact, I might. <laughs> let me look it up on the map. Okay, it's an Arabic country in Africa. I think that counts. Yeah. And so, um, I, you know, I connected with my wife to figure out the dates. And so I um, so I leave on, tu- on next Tuesday to go to Amsterdam to, where I do a, a horse expo in Amsterdam. Then I do two clinics in Holland. And so that was already organized, and Robin told her we could tack it on the end of the Holland trip, but he finishes the, the clinic in Holland on Sunday, and you want to do it the next weekend, so we've got to figure out what we'll do for the week. And she said, oh, fly down here Monday and stay with us in the ambassador's residence, and we'll show you around Morocco. Rough life. Rough <laughs> yeah, life. So, <laughs> so we just had, a, um, just had a conference call with her the other day, her and the head of guy, his name's Omar, and he's the head of the – it's a S-O-R-E-C or something, which is Society for the Royal Promotion of Horses or something in Morocco. Yeah. And so that's where we're going to do the clinic at, their, at the, that facility. And um, so they've got all sorts of stuff they're going to take us to do. We're going to go and see the – we're going to go to Casablanca to the races one day at the Hippodrome there. I'm absolutely in awe just listening to all the worldly travel that you've done and all the experiences and, and all by way of the horse. It's incredible. Yeah, I've, I've been very, very, very fortunate yeah. um, to have all these opportunities arise. But I also do think that the whole believing stuff like that's going to happen is a big part of it. And that might sound a bit woo-woo to some people, but I'm uh, there's no other way it happened because I'm not much of a planner. Yeah, no, we uh, we talk a lot about perspective on this show, and, and I truly believe in my heart as well that, that your perspective or the way you think towards any scenario, challenge, experience in life uh, plays a huge role in the outcome. And uh, I know the lion's share of our conversation today is going to be about horsemanship and kind of your, your recent changes in experience and, and, and process towards that. But let's just briefly touch on how you kind of got your start with horses 
and your experience, and then we'll get into the lion's share of of how perspective matters in your experience. Uh, yeah, I so I grew up in Australia on a twelve hundred acre mixed farm. We had the wheat farm, sheep, maybe some cattle. Um, so it wasn't our farm. Dad was just a dad was just a farm worker. He just lived in we just lived in a cottage on the farm, which was part of you know dad's pay mm-hmm. um but i had 1200 acres to explore and, and dad my father my father rodeoed did all the all the events really all five events at the time because team roping wasn't in australia yeah. at the time um and then you know in the late 60s they um started importing quarter horses from america and so they started using them in the timed events and that's where dad became interested in the quarter horses and so then we started riding i started riding when i was I, I really don't know when I started writing, but I'm thinking it was about eight. Um, and then we, you know, I started writing in Pony Club. Then started uh, we started showing quarter horses, and yeah, that's that's kind of where I got started with the writing. At what point do you do you make that transition and realize, okay, this is this is something I want to invest my life in. This is something I want to dedicate my life to. <laughs> well, like I just said, I'm not much of a planner, yeah. so I, I kind of. I kind of, um, I'd say, didn't have a lot of self belief. Like I'm not the I'm not the real confident go getter kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to go to America to um, learn a bit about training reining horses, just so I could actually train my own at home. You know, I wasn't I didn't have any grand plans, and so I. Um, I had met someone in Australia, an American in Australia a few years previously, and I kept writing letters. This is before internet, of course, writing letters back and forth. And this person said, hey, you know, if you want to come over, you can stay with my parents until you figure out what you want to do. And so I came to America in November, October maybe, 1990. And um, within two weeks, I had a job with a, with a horse trainer who actually lives right by where – or used to live right by where you live right now in yeah. Redwood, California. Yeah. And uh, so I had a, a year, I had a six month visa. And so I was there for six months and then I reapplied and got another six months on my visa. And then uh, my plan was to just be here for a year and go home. And uh, the day that I was leaving to go back to Australia, we kind of shook hands on the porch. Someone was going to take me to the airport. Um, we shook hands on the porch and he said to me, You know, if you want to come back, I'll give you a job. He said, You could do this for a living if you wanted to. That's incredible. And I'd, I'd never actually. You know, I'd never actually even given that a thought. And I, and I think that comes just from not having a lot of uh, self-confidence and that go-getter sort of a thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said before, I think I've been lucky that I'm I'm kind of good at the no-tension part of that intention, <laughs> that tension, no-tension. I'm like, you Let know, it fly. I, yeah, just, I, I've just been a real follower of whatever presents itself to me and I – you know, it's probably a blessing and a curse, but it's it's kind of got me this far, so I'm sticking with I'd it. Say it has so, it hasn't failed you yet, so <laughs> no. So then I went back to Australia, and um, I was back there for six months, and then I came back again because the first year I was here, I met a lady named Robin, who is now my wife, and I unsuccessfully chased her for the whole year I was here, <laughs> and then when I went back to Australia, she kind of missed me chasing her, and you know, today I can jump back on a plane if you need. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're back there, now I'm kind of in, now that you're not here, chasing yeah. me, I'm kind of interested in you. But uh, funny story about manifesting. Before I went to America, I uh, I had I had bought an old F100. I think it was a 1978 F100, 
off a friend of mine and it had some rust in it and it was in, you know, not in the, wasn't in the best shape. And I paid $5,000 for it. But at the time, that year make and model of F100, I could insure it for 10000 The market value of that one was 10000 And so I had it insured for $10,000 because I don't actually look at your vehicle when they insure it. You just yeah. send them the paperwork. So I had it insured for $10,000. And I said to three different people on one occasion each, I said, I wish I knew how to write this thing off without killing myself because if I – could do that i would take the money and i'd go to america and i i don't I, you know at the time i you know i didn't, anyway so about three months later i'm driving down the road about you know 70 miles an hour two-lane country road in australia blow a left front tire and go off the road into a stand of small trees so it wasn't one big gum tree that probably would have made a mess of me but it was enough it was enough cushion to not make a mess of me but it was enough thump to uh write the truck off so i got a check from the insurance company (laughs) for ten thousand dollars and at the time i I had no idea i did that i know now i know that i i manifested that i was going to say if that's not the manifestation you talked about previously i don't know what is yeah well i've always you know i've always thought i was lucky because you know stuff that i wish would happen just happens and so i've always thought i was lucky until you know later on i kind of got into understanding how all that stuff works and and uh yeah now i realize i've always been able to do it i just didn't know i was doing it at the time you know i was i wasn't aware i was doing it i was doing it without even knowing i was doing it like i said i just i just thought i was lucky so we have we have a sign big sign that hangs in our house and it says luck is believing you are lucky interesting to say the least, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so you make the trip to the States in, in 1990 and set up shop here. Uh, well, I was here for a year and then I went back. Gotcha. So I went back in, in October or November one of 1991. Mm-hmm. Then I came back mid-1992 and then Rob and I were married in mid-1994. And then you begin to pursue – now, specifically, uh, the reigning horses or, or horsemanship uh, in general? That's what I uh, know. The, the reigning horses came first. Um, yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to train the reigning horses. And initially, you don't get reigning horses. You get whatever you can. Whatever yeah. you can. My, uh, um, my Robin's mum, my mother-in-law, gave me a yearling for our wedding present. And oh, nice. so he was he was my first reigning horse I got to actually take to the horse shows and show and he was probably how I started getting reigning clients was I trained him and started showing him and then people, you know, hey, do you want to train this horse and that horse? So it, it started out very, very slowly. Um, but, the you know, initially it was the reigning I was interested in, but mm-hmm. then I got interested in more of the horsemanship side of it as a way to get those reining horses trained better, you know, get more into the mind of the horse, yeah. trying to figure out how to train reining horses better. That's what it was really about at the time. Um, and then in 2006, Robin and I actually moved back. Robin and, I and, my, and my son moved back to Australia. We had – so in two, here's, another, here's another really good manifestation thing. Um, in the middle of about – so I, I, we travelled quite a bit in two thousand one. I was hauling for, competing for what I, you know, a world title, mm-hmm. and so my son was in kindergarten. So we homeschooled him in kindergarten because we drove from the east coast to the west coast. We were all over the place going to horse shows, 
And at the end of that year, then we put him in, in school in uh, 2002. And in 2003, about the middle of the year, we um, – or yeah, about the middle of the year, or earlier in the year, we I, I said to Rob, you know what, this whole horse show thing, like the better you get at it, the more you've got to be gone and the less it seems like, you know, that – it's it's got to be harder with with kids, you know. That Correct. kind of gets in the way. I wonder if there's something else we could do. And so I actually looked at. We actually went back to Australia, to my hometown, and looked into buying a Subway sandwich franchise. No kidding. Of all, of all things. <laughs> and um, we got back there and started making inquiries. And when we got a hold of Subway, they said, "Well, that that franchise in that town's been available for four years now, but it just got." Someone just got it two days ago. Oh no! So the door was closed on me. Yeah. So the unit, the universe said, "Nope, not today. You are not gonna, you're not gonna <laughs> own a Subway sandwich shop. You are so not I gonna had, be in the sandwich business." So I had put it out there that I wanted to do something different than what I was doing because I wanted more home time with my son. You know, not be gone all the time. So I had a client who was quite wealthy and was building a uh, a big private facility of their own. And her husband at the time was the biggest headhunter in Silicon Valley. Okay, so he, mm-hmm. you know, he's an IT executive recruiter, is what he did. He's actually the guy, he ended up um, introducing Tim Cook to Steve Jobs. He's the guy that got the new head of Apple, basically. Oh, wow. Afterwards, but he's, he, yeah, had, he, said, yeah. he said to Steve Jobs, Hey, I've got this guy. I think you need to meet him because I think he'd be a good replacement for you. And that's that guy is now Tim Cook. Um, Anyway, so the husband, uh, it was probably October that year. I think Robin was Robin was competing for a world title that year, and she was in Columbus, Ohio at the Quarter Horse Congress competing. And I got a phone call from the husband, and he, the headhunter, and he said, hey, do you know anybody, any, some, any older guy, like an older trainer who's kind of just about retired but kind of wants a job? He said, my wife wants someone to come over here and train for us privately. Uh, worked for us privately. Do you know anybody who's looking for something like that? And I said, you know what? No, not really because I know your wife and she she is quite particular about how things are done and there's only so many people. You know, I, I said, mm-hmm. the thing with it is anybody who's looking for the job is not qualified for the job and anybody who's qualified for the job is not looking for the job. Yeah. yeah. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, anyway, that's how we left it. And he said, well, if you think of someone, let me know. So that's how we left it. And I got off the phone and I thought, well, hang on. I might that know kind of sounds like <laughs> That sounds like what I'm kind of thinking about. So I called Robin in Ohio and I said, what do you think? She says, call him back and tell him you're interested. And so I called him back, tell him I'm interested, and turns out, there we go, We it ends up being a, a job. So I, I basically have, now have a job training horses nine to five, basically, um, so I can drop my son off at school go to work, and then I can come home or in the afternoon. I'll go pick him up from school and take him back out to the ranch and finish up my day. So we did that for three years from 2003 to 2006, I mean 2004, five, and six. And what was funny is about two years into that job, he said, the husband said, oh, I've got to tell you a funny story. He said, remember the day I called you? And I said, yeah. And he said, I got off the phone, turned to my wife and said, I've got him. <laughs> he's such a good headhunter. I was going to say, if he's he not in his he element. Me, he knew he had me before I knew he had me. <laughs> well played chess match. Yes, very well played. And they're amazing people. And it was just a, it was a, ve- yeah, it was a very, very cool time um, 
you know, they they had a, an architect from back east who who designs places for oh, all sorts of rich people. Um, mm-hmm. So he he built the they had a, a huge big house there, but on the place, but they, the barn was architect designed. You know, um, yeah, it was just it was no expense spared. It was amazing, amazing place, and yeah, it was a, it was a really good time because I got to. You know, during those formative years with my son, I spent a lot of time with him. Yeah, a lot, a lot of time with him. So, which was really, really good. And then we, then after three years of that, they decided they wanted wanted to actually sell up, and they decided they wanted to go and live in the snow in Colorado for a while. So, this was on the coast of California, it was over near uh, Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and so they decided they wanted to do something different. So then I had, you know, I'd had a a, a big business um, in Gilroy. When they asked me to, you know, we had a lot of clients. We had 16 to 20 horses in training all the time. Wow. And I had an assistant who'd worked with me for four years. And after four years, I said to him, you know what? I've taught you all I can teach you. I've taught you a lot of horsey stuff, you know. But if you really want to get good at the running, you need to go to Texas and work for one of the big guys. So I found him a job in Texas and sent him off to go work for one of the big guys. And he'd only been there for six months before I got this phone call. So then I said, hey, uh, I know you've only been there about six months, but do you want a barn full of clients? So I basically gave him my business. Holy smokes. Um, and then went over to work for the other people. So three years later, when they decided they wanted to do something different, what do I do? Move back over this way and steal all my clients back from, you know, it, it was for my assistant. Uh, it's you tough know, spot so to be was, Yeah, so we decided, well, you know, why don't we uh, – why don't we move back to my hometown in Australia and do something different? So we're in Australia for – went back to Australia. We ended up being there for four years. And, you know, you don't get a lot of reining horses to train there. So that's when I really got a lot of just general sorts of horses and really worked on quite a bit more of that horsemanship stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we moved back to America in the end of 2010 and I had to start all over again, all over again, really. And – um at the time, I I said, to, uh, I think I said to Robin, I know I said to someone, I said, you know what, I might do, I might start putting some, you know, social media was really ramping up then, and I said, you know, I wouldn't mind, I want to put some videos on YouTube, and there was, for no, in, in no way, shape, or form was it meant to be something I was going to get anything back from. It was like some of this stuff is so simple, and I see people struggling with this all the time. I said, I'm going to start putting little clips on YouTube, just showing people how. Simple stuff can be, and uh, that's that was the start of the whole the whole YouTube thing. You know, the whole social media yeah. thing was yeah. was that. And it's been quite the development since then. Yes, I am coming up on very close to nineteen million views on my YouTube channel. That is um, incredible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and, and and you know, I was at one point in time I was listening to a um a podcast by Tony Robbins one time and he was talking about, you know, the secret to being a, not successful but I think it was to be happy, to be like a complete human being. And he said there's seven things you got to have and then there's the first five and everybody kind of gets that one. But then number six, he said, is, is the one that really takes you to the next level. And he says that is giving. Where you start giving with no thought of any return on it and uh, when we'd moved back to australia i both my wife and i got on the board of reigning australia so at the time reigning in australia was just 
so the, the the National Reining Horse Association here in America has basically become the worldwide governing body of the sport. And uh, Australia had kind of been doing their own thing for quite a while. And the year before we moved back there, they uh, joined forces with NRH over here. So they had to adopt a whole new rule book and, you know, things were kind of a bit different. There was a bit of trouble, you know, that transition into that. So my wife was a qualified show secretary. She was a qualified judge. We competed quite a bit. So we moved back there. We got on the board of running Australia to see if we could help with the integration of that new new rule book for them. Mm-hmm. And um, they have a big horse expo in Australia called Equitana in Melbourne once every two years. And Equitana was coming up that year and they said, can, does anybody, can anybody go to Equitana and do a running demonstration? And out of everybody who was on the, the board of running Australia, I lived probably the closest to that. And I said, yeah, well, I can, I can go down there and do that. So I basically volunteered to go and do a running demonstration at this horse expo and so when Equitana found out I was coming down there, they said, hey, we have a, we have a, a cult starter. You know Road to the Horse here in America? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. They have something like that, and it's called Way of the Horse, but it's the same thing, three days, cult starting thing. They said, could you be our in-arena commentator, like our color commentator, explain what's going on? And I said, sure, yeah, no worries. I can, I can do that. I can help out. And so I got to stand in the arena, and there's probably four or 5,000 people in that arena each day. So I get to stand in the arena for three days in a row and explain what was going on in front of people. And uh, probably the one talent I have is being able to explain things in a way people can understand. And so from that, I had a lot of people watching me explain things. And I got a lot of phone calls after that and said, hey, we really like the way you explain things. Would you like to come and do a clinic? Well, I'd never thought of doing clinics before. I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't even think about that. But when the universe threw that at me, instead of saying, no, I don't do clinics, I said, sure, I'll have a crack at that. So that's, yeah. that's where all the clinic stuff started too. And so if you think about the clinic stuff started from volunteering because that's all I was doing there was volunteering to help out. I wasn't volunteering thinking something was going to come back from it, just volunteering. And then the same thing when we moved back to America, the whole YouTube thing was not about, okay, here's the business plan. I'm going to make some YouTube videos and people are going to want yeah. something and they can sell them something. There, there wasn't any of that and there's never really been any of that in anything I do. Um, and anyway, so that's how the, the clinic started and that's basically how the, the YouTube thing started. When I first started doing YouTube videos, when anybody first starts doing YouTube videos, you can't put videos longer than 10 minutes on there because they really don't want you clogging up the airwaves with three hours of your cat walking up and down the piano or something, you know. <laughs> and there's plenty and, of those out there, unfortunately. Yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, and so I was doing videos of less than 10 minutes. But then after a while, when I started looking at the analytics of that, most people don't watch more than three or four minutes. That you know, ninety-five yeah. percent yeah. of the people don't watch any more than three or four minutes. And so then I thought, okay, I need to, I, you know, I want people to learn something. I want them to get stuff. So then I started making shorter ones where I get in, make a point, and get out. Mm-hmm. And then people were saying, but we want longer, full-length ones. And so basically, basically, they kind of, you know, the the population at large basically talked me into starting a, an online video subscription thing and at the time I was training horses and uh, you know I had a lot of problem horses coming in and so I thought you know what I'm going to do I'm going to start video on these horses the first day I work with them the second day I work with them the third day I work with them like show the whole process and the first one I had that I did that with was a 17-2 Andalusian dressage horse that has all the problems he spooks he rears he bucks he bolts he 
you lead him, he won't lead or he runs over you, he kicks at other horses when he goes by, you can't cross time, you can't do this, you can't do that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So That's I, a big horse to have all those issues too. That's a lot of horse yeah, control. And he, yeah, and he was lovely, but, you know, just had some basic mm-hmm. issues. So I videoed, like I said, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. Um, I didn't video everything, you know, like when I was, let's say the first day I worked with him, then I videoed the second day, then I videoed the third day, and then I said, okay, so I'm going to work on these three things until they're good, and then I'll video the net when I add something new. All i got to do is rinse and repeat for the stuff I've showed you, then when I do something new, we'll video that. So um, that was earlier on, and everybody just loved the fact that it was raw. It was, you know, it wasn't five camera angles and intense music and lights and flash. It was basically like you were sitting there on the fence watching me. And so that's when I did my, you know, finished, when I did the whole online video thing, it's it's basically like that. It's not overproduced. I don't have multiple camera angles. You know, the horse isn't sweaty and puffing when I start. So, you know, I haven't done something <laughs> off camera. Yeah. That, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so that's how it all started. And, and that video subscription thing actually turned into um, – you know my my main business. That's that's the big that that in the clinics is what I do these days. I haven't trained horses for the public for the last uh, four years because I was doing the videos, I was traveling, doing clinics, and I was trying to train horses. And that just there was too much. And one of them pays very little. And that's yes. Tra- that's training horses. Yes. And the other ones make a bit more money than that. You know, I had a son who wanted to go to college. And, things like that. So I thought, well, I better go with the things that make a little that, more money. Uh, make a little more money, yeah. Yeah. That's one heck of a story as far as the progression and I mean, as you're going through the timeline, the the whole manifestation thing just again and again and again shows its face and it's incredible to see how the progression's take taken place over the years and and what the business has grown to be. It's it's got to be an absolute blessing, one heck of a wild ride and I I just it's so exciting to hear all the opportunities that come from it because you stay true to the horse and you, you stay passionate about your education. And, and the most profound point is just that is giving, giving without expectation. Yeah. And you know, and it's not, it's, it wasn't one of those things where, Oh, I read something you're supposed to give without expectation. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to go, you know, because if you think about that, if you, if you read somewhere, the way to be successful is give without that expectation. And you know that, then you actually have an expectation that the reason you're giving is so something can happen from it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I and I probably wouldn't have worked if I knew that because, you know, it's it's there's got to be this. I think there's just something to do with that raw authenticity when you do something. It's being um, genuine. Yeah, being genuine. Yeah, and uh, you know, and I don't know if I could have done it the same way if I had known it would actually turn into something. Yeah. Because the the whole, you know, intent and the energy and everything would have been completely different. So I've kind of been lucky that I was in the dark a lot about <laughs> what I was doing for a long time. Looking back in hindsight, now I kind of go, oh, yeah, I know what was going on. But at the time, I didn't know what was going on. And I think, you know, four years ago, probably not long after I first got married, probably 96 maybe, we had a friend of ours. He's actually my son's godmother's husband gave me a set of cassette tapes um, and they were by Napoleon Hill. You ever heard of Napoleon Hill? I have not. Napoleon Hill, I think he was the one who may have wrote uh, 
No, no, it was Cunning. I was going to think how to win friends and influence people, but it wasn't him. That was Dale Carnegie. But I think it was Think and Grow Rich or something or other. But he was born in the Appalachian Mountains in the like during the Depression sort of thing. Grew up poor, whatever, and and he um, ended up going, put himself through typing school, and ended up being a uh, a secretary for one of the richest guys in the world at the time. He was a, like a Vanderbilt or a Rockefeller or one of those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And he got to meet all the other people, the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and all those sorts of things. And he asked them questions and he spent 20 years, he worked for this guy for 20 years. And he asked them all questions of basically about how did you, how did you get to this point? And yeah. so then he documented all this stuff and took all the common denominators of these people that didn't even know each other, but became wealthy because of wealthy and successful because of these things they did. And so this set of cassette tapes was called the, the secret to personal success or something like that. And so what did I do? I listened to him and then didn't do anything at all. <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't follow the instructions at all. But then years later when things got being really good and stuff, when I looked back, I did all those things they said. I just didn't do it because they Consciously, said it. I did it. Yes. Because I, and it wasn't – I don't think that was implanted into my head in my unconscious. Mm-hmm. I think it was just – I was interested in what I was doing and when you are interested in what you're doing, you do all those things anyway because all of those wealthy people this guy interviewed didn't know each other but they all had these common denominator things they did that made them successful. And, and um, looking back, it was like, oh, yeah, I, I don't think I could have done it. And it had to be for me. It had to be organic. It had to be yeah. I figured it out on my own. I don't, yeah. I, I don't think I could have done it the same if I had of – known what I was doing was actually going to lead to something because I think that expectation really gets, you know, changes the energy in the whole thing. Well, and I have conversations a lot with people when you place, and there's just a personal opinion and, and I'm sure this is not unique, but when you place expectations on any given scenario, you, you set yourself up for failure, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You have to have some set of goals, right, in some set of direction. But, you know, if you you go out and, hey, I'm going to achieve X with the horse today. Well, there's a lot of great successful stuff that you can do and not achieve X, you know. And if your focus is just on whatever that goal is and you don't achieve it, now you're, you're, you may view yourself as a failure, right? Or you create contention in a relationship with your horse, you know. And, and I try to tell people to just focus on the next step, literally the next step, right? And and before you know it, those steps will start to amount to to larger successes, but you can't get caught up in the big picture. You know, you got to really focus on the process and be appreciative of the victories, however slight they may be. Yes, there's a um one of the most of the one of the most spiritual of the ancient Hindu traditions is a thing called karma yoga, and karma yoga is focusing on a task with no thought as to the outcome of that task. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. There yeah. is, is doing something with no thought of the outcome of it, just being involved yeah. in in it. So now that I was going to say, this provides a great segue. We had a conversation earlier in the week, and you talked about how your perspectives have recently changed, despite. All of that you have accomplished in in the reigning horse world, in the world of equestrian games, and everything that you've done across the world with horses, you had a change in perspective recently in your approach to the horse. So let's start to develop that a little bit with this idea of mind of awareness. So so to start with it, let's let's lay a little context as to 
kind of where you were at, the scenario that, that set up this challenge, and then how the perspectives have changed. So about four years ago, my wife bought a um, – was looking for a new reigning horse, looking for a, a, to buy a new reigning horse. And and we knew of two horses for sale that a friend of mine in uh, Texas had. He had both of these horses. And he's he's been on the World Equestrian Games team with us. He's actually been on on the Australian team for all the World Equestrian Games. You know, the first Australian team was in 2010, and he was on it then. He was in 2014 in Normandy, and then he was on it last year with us in um, Tryon, North Carolina. And he's one of the, you know, he's one of the best running trainers in the world, and most certainly the best Australian in the world. And so, you know, I know how he trains horses, so I don't, I don't need to go ride the horse. I don't need mm-hmm. to go and figure mm-hmm. it all out. You know, yeah. he actually, he used to, he used to train horses in, um, in. Um, Europe, and he moved. Him and his family moved back to Australia about a month after we did in 2006, and they stayed there a year longer than us. They stayed till 2011, and they moved here to America. Uh, but he, um, you know, so I spent quite a bit of time with him then in Australia, and I've known him since I was a kid, so I knew all about his horse training. I watched a video of both horses. One of them was kind of a, you know, big soggy gelding that did stuff okay but wasn't very dynamic and the other one was just really really dynamic could do some cool stuff but they never really got him successfully shown because he does things like spook at the judges chairs mm-hmm. okay the reigning stuff's great just he's a little bit spooky at the judges chairs things like that and at the time you know i'm got this youtube channel that's going well the subscription's going well I do clinics all around the world and people listen to what I have to say and I was starting to believe my own BS, you know. I'm like, yeah, buy the horse. I can fix that. I can fix yeah. anything. And so we bought this horse and uh, Robin actually, I think Robin met him in Las Vegas. So she flew to Las Vegas. They came out to a show in Las Vegas and Robin got in there and showed him and she said, oh, it's not just the judge's chairs. It's everything. Like you go in his stall to catch him. He's odd. you got to lead him in the wash rack. He doesn't want to go in the wash rack. He's just odd and he's not – He's not actually a spooky sort of a horse. He's kind of a just a kind of a shut down sort of a horse. Anyway, so we got him home and like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna fix this horse. I couldn't change anything about him. Like as far as the spooky stuff, yeah, we got rid of that. That was quite easy. But what I found was this horse is just in his own head. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just, he's quite shut down, and uh, nothing I'd ever done in the past worked with him. You know, I'd had some horses that were a bit shut down and stuff at clinics. And a lot of times with the horses that are a bit shut down, if you actually, actually, uh, you know, if you actually step in the middle of them and be a bit more active about things, well, they pop out of it. This one didn't. Doing The more you did to him, the more inside he went. And so I kind of stepped back away from trying to change anything about him. And, you know, Robin was still showing him and stuff. And he, he, he competed okay. But, you know, this shutdown thing, I couldn't get that sorted. And so I, I stepped away from, you know, I'm not stupid enough to, you know, beat a dead horse, so to speak. So I, I wasn't still trying to change him. I'm like, hey, uh, everything I know doesn't work with this horse, so I'm not going to do anything with him. Yeah. But it really got me to look outside the lens in which I'd been looking at. And, you know, where I'd been looking at was all the horsemanshipy stuff, which is – and most of the horsemanshipy stuff is about training horses. It's about techniques. Um, and I was just looking for better and better and better techniques, and it was it wasn't working. So he really made me consider 
stuff that, you know, in the past I would have referred to as crazy cat lady horse stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the black know. magic. Well, not so much black magic because um, it wasn't so much that. It was more crazy cat lady, like, you know, not horse people, not professional horse people, like backyard horse people, stuff they do with their horses. You don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. um, so it really got me looking into that. And I was at, I presented a horse expo in um, Los Angeles in Pomona in January of one of those years. And I had to do a, some of those, most of those horse expos, you, you do a, a demo in an arena with a horse and a rider, but then sometimes you've just got to do like a stand-up presentation mm-hmm. in like a, you know, like a, a, a speaking hold sort of thing. And this one I had to get, I had to do one of them at this thing and I went along to it and the speaker before me had gone over a little bit. So I was sitting there waiting to get the microphone and it was a girl named Mary Kitzmiller. You ever heard of Mary Kitzmiller? I have not. So Mary's from Texas and she's worked for some big time, spent a lot of time working for some like big time horsemanship people and also worked for some big time reigning people and knows how to train a horse at the time, what I would call properly, you know, she knows how to properly train a horse and her talk was on clicker training and, and, up to that point in time, my thoughts on clicker training were well, that's for crazy cat ladies who don't yeah. know how to train a horse. Yeah. And she was talking about clicker training. It was all making sense what she was saying. And so when she got finished and she handed me the microphone, I said, hey, uh, where's your booth? I want to come and talk to you about this clicker training stuff. And she said, oh, I'll, it's all right. I'll find you. So I went and did the thing and then went back to the booth and she came over later that day and spent probably two hours sitting in the booth telling me all about this stuff. I'm like, hmm, I might have a bit of a – I might have a bit of a crack of that. So I came home from there and started messing with the – that was my, that was my, first, in, my first foray into something other than horse training. Traditional, know, yeah, horse, horsemanship. Traditional, yeah. traditional horsemanship. And traditional horsemanship is a long way removed from traditional horse riding. Correct. You know, so it's a lot further down that path. But this was further down that that path and so then from then on i just started looking at more and more things that were outside that realm and what i probably the the big thing that i i uh came across was the i so what i what i so i had so that horse he was kind of shut down i had another young horse here at the time and he was mine and he's i think he was three years old and i was going to start riding him and um, doing all the groundwork, he could do it, but he's just kind of odd. I, I couldn't put my finger on it at the time because I didn't know any better. And then I started under saddle with him and the saddling process, you know, he's one of those horses, you saddle him up, he'd buck and he'd freeze and he'd buck and he'd freeze. But he, he just didn't track around really well carrying a saddle. And, you know, that got a little better but not much better. Then I started riding him and I had about 10 rides on him and it was just – I got racket cruise around, walk trot canter, you know, but he just wasn't kind of how I wanted him to be. So I kind of said, okay, I'm not even going to do anything with him until I figure more of this stuff out. And I, um, it's really what he's the one who really got me thinking about. Well, the, the, someone suggested they watched a video of him. They said you should wait longer when you're asking to do something on the ground. Just wait longer. Wait till he licks and chews, and. Then I realized that's what this horse does. He doesn't lick and chew, which means he's basically just holding his breath yeah, he's the bound whole up. time. Yeah. You know, he's just basically holding his breath the whole time. He was very obedient, 
but just didn't have the level of relaxation I wanted. And uh, so the thing with him is when you've got to wait for him to lick and chew, you've got to wait a long time. So there's a whole lot of standing around doing nothing. And um, from that I kind of found that, hey, you know what? I have a hard time standing around doing nothing, being present. And so, yeah, it's, it's that was the start of the whole thing. And now, you know, now it's morphed into something, not something completely different, but a whole lot more of that same thing. But that, those two horses were kind of start, the start of the whole thing. And it's incredible in all that you've accomplished, right, your constant pursuit of education and having that willingness to to seek other options. And and I recently had a, a guest on the show who talked about positive reinforcement training and the ideas of clicker training. And she went out and, I mean, studied with dolphin trainers and all sorts of other yep. animals, right, that learn this this behavior or this pattern. And uh, as odd as it sounds at face value, there's something to it. You know, uh, her and I had a lot of conversations off air and I've implemented a lot of the positive reinforcement training with my own horse uh, because the horse that I own is very much what you described. Uh, a willing worker, but just not, you can tell that he's not terribly confident, right? And, yeah, and, he, and, they're, and, not, and they're not engaged. Yeah, he's between, yeah. he's he's in his own head. It, and that's what I tell people. The toughest six inches that I've ever worked with this horse is in between his ears. Right, yeah. And, and it's it's difficult, but it's exciting to see that that there there is some value in this. But I think all of this, this clicker training, positive reinforcement training, I think it's so new. Uh, that we need to do a little bit more education on it and, and put it to the test in a longer term. So in your experience, how have how have you seen changes in horses, either in their presentation, their response, their personalities, as a result of some of these newer newer found methods? Well, the the big thing I found is you know, it's it's been a it's been a Oh, it's been a hell of a journey, I tell you. Um, so the thing that this Sherlock horse, his name Sherlock is his name, the, the shutdown one, is he actually he actually got me to realize that I was actually quite shut down. Interesting. And uh, I was at a horse expo a few years ago in Madison, Wisconsin, and I met – have you ever interviewed Barbara Schulte? I have not interviewed Barbara Schulte, no. You should interview Barbara Schulte. She's pretty amazing. But uh, I met Barbara Schulte there and I and I, I went and did a um, – I had to do one of those stand-up talks at this horse expo. Okay. And it was in a lecture hall. Anyway, when I got done with there, I came back and the, 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 the subject I did it on was one I've done at several horse expos before, which is called Everything I Learned in Life I Learned from Horses. And it's about life lessons I'd learned from horses but this one was completely different than the ones I'd done before because I was starting to morph into to different things and so her booth was on the same row as my booth so Dan James's booth was beside hers and there was hers and then there was a couple more and there was mine and so I had to walk past her on the way back and as I walked past she said how'd it go and I said oh god it was it was hard it was I mean I'm exhausted I feel drained she goes why I said oh because I kind of I kind of let some stuff out that I kind of had not been planning on let out, letting out, you know. She goes, oh, well, that's a thing about vulnerability. And she's, she mentioned the name, she mentioned uh, Brene Brown. Have you ever heard of Brene Brown? I have. Yeah, she mentioned Brene Brown. And so that was my first introduction to Brene Brown. And so I, I um, got home from there and I started getting some Brene Brown books on audio. And the first Brene Brown book I was listening to, 
and she said, you cannot, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones. And, you know, coming, being a male of my generation, um, you know, we're all taught that boys don't cry sort of thing. And yeah. so, you know, and in my, you know, in my family, you also don't show grief too. Like grief's not something that you, you show either. So, you, you know, you definitely don't show fear, but then there was the don't show grief too. And so Which is tough because that emotion alone could eat you up. Yeah, and so there's the, they're those lower emotions. And I'm like, yeah, well, this, I know they're suppressed. I said, I don't know if I could be, I don't know if the upper ones could be any better. I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> and uh, so uh, anyway, so then I got to, to uh, asking around about that. And I talked to a lady who's a therapist. She has horses back east and she's a therapist. And I said, hey, if I wanted to, if I wanted to kind to kind of uh, work a bit more on these these emotion things, you know, I think maybe the higher emotions are a bit suppressed. What should, what sort of a therapist would I go to? And she said, "Oh, I'd probably go and see someone who does something called DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy." And I think dialectical behavior therapy was first. It was initially. Uh, conceived to help highly suicidal adults but these days they use it for anyone with any emotional regulation issues you know so i i started seeing a therapist for that and i told her what i wanted to do and she goes oh yeah this this won't this won't you know take all that long and she said we have a we also have a group therapy thing but you you won't need that anyway after about three months of me going to a on one-on-one session, she goes, you probably should go to the group therapy too. <laughs> um, and i spent a year doing that and i really didn't get anywhere doing it because it's mostly for people who have emotional regulation problems means they have emotions come up and they have trouble regulating them. I didn't have enough emotions for it to actually be effective. Oh, wow. Um, But there was so much I learned from that that applies to horses. And I really, you know, if if you've ever heard the saying, and it's an old uh, Lao Tzu, you know, born in 600 BC or something rather, you know, Chinese philosopher, he said that, if you're depressed, you're living in the past. And if you're anxious, you're living in the future. And if you're peaceful, you're living in the present. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode of Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, you can find us on social media under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. If you want to support the growth of this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Again, we thank you, and we'll see you on the next one.